This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Earlier this year, Choice investigated Amazon Kindle's terms and conditions and found that the 73,198-word document would take the regular person something like nine hours to read. Uh, You might have seen the amusing clip of an actor reading the T's and C's on YouTube. It it got me a giggle. Um, But what's the point of documents like this when most of us will never read them? And if we don't read them, how vulnerable are we as consumers when making purchases online? Associate Professor Jeannie Patterson's at the Melbourne Law School, and she's looked into this and has some hope that technology itself will improve e-consumer protections. And it's really great to have you in at Triple R. Thanks for coming in, Jeannie. Oh, thank you for having me. And um, terms and conditions, how important is it that we read them? Because like most people, I read very few. You're not alone. Most people don't read them. I I always ask my class at the beginning of the year who reads their mobile phone contracts and there's not many of them that put up their hands. I think it's just me, actually, because that's my job. Uh, So we don't... Nine hours of reading, though? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's insane. (laughs) It's come a bit of a joke because purchasing, buying and selling consumer products is premised on consumers making choices about who they buy from and why. But the reality is that we have no choice about the terms and conditions. So really we're buying on things like uh, whether we want the product and what we think the reputation of the seller is. Are the terms and conditions written in in the way that they tend to be sort of deliberately to confuse people or is it simply just to protect the company from litigation? It's a combination. Um, People who've done studies have looked at terms and conditions online and they're generally looped generally not just long, but they're written in capitals and there's no white space around them. And the purpose of writing terms and conditions in capitals with no white space around them makes it really difficult for us to read them. We read by looking at the shape of words. So if you sort of compress the shape and don't let us see them, it's quite unlikely that consumers will read those terms and conditions. So there's a whole lot of tricks actually being played on consumers. The terms and conditions are really long, they're written in a way we can't read them. Um, So the idea is that the sellers are selling on the basis of the product and all the other stuff about their rights is behind the product. Now, that's okay in the case of a physical product because if we buy a CD or a pair of shoes, often we've got a pretty good view about it, whether it works or not and what what our use of it's going to be. But now a lot of the products that we're buying are really complicated products and they're not being bought in the ways we usually understand. We're actually getting a licence to use digital products, a bit of software so that our laptop or our reader device can understand some data and then we're just getting a whole lot of data. Now that's quite different from you know your physical book or your physical shoe. Some more complicated products that's pretty important that we understand how it works and what our rights are in relation to them and yet it's pretty much impossible to do so. Yeah so what I mean what then as a consumer can we do when purchasing digital products like that say music even uh, we know that we are just able to use them on our own devices but then the ability to kind of lend it to somebody that sort of right doesn't necessarily exist. Well first of all I think it's really important to be aware that Australia has really really good consumer protection law. We have some of the best consumer protection law of anywhere in the world. Uh, So first of all we need to know our rights because, in fact, our regulator has taken on some of these big providers. The ACCC has taken on Apple and it's taken on Steam, who are two of the biggest online providers. It's taken them on in one. Problem is people don't necessarily know that. So when things go wrong, they tend to go, whoa, look at that contract. I don't think I can do anything. 
In fact, they can. So one, know your rights. And two, I think that consumers need to start asking for the same sort of respect in the terms and conditions in the contracting process uh, that they, um, that they, the same sort of respect that they deserve. And if we're dealing with sophisticated online providers that can give us a sort of whiz-bang products, shouldn't they be able to bring that same information to the terms and conditions themselves? The fact you're reading a PDF... I know. Can you force that, though? Can you force... <laughs> Um, the T's and C's to be written in a way that one, you can understand and two, that they're they're brief enough and to the point enough that you actually know what your rights are. Well, actually, this is where we need a bit of law reform. In the EU, there's actually, there's requirements in relation to the, the provision of online material, which says you've got to get a summary of who the provider is, how do you contact them? and what their dispute resolution processes are. Now, it's not perfect, but it's at least the beginning. So I think we need a little bit more law reform in Australia just to have those sort of safeguards for online online products. And so, I mean, there's very big players in the um, e-commerce space, such as, you know, Apple and even eBay, for example, but there's a lot of other smaller businesses operating all around the world and selling things online. What happens if you buy something from, you know, a small online business in China, for example, and you don't get the products that that you thought you were purchasing? What what should you do? Do you have any recourse to... Unfortunately, and I was talking about this with my daughter recently, uh, who bought something online, not realising she was buying it overseas. If you buy something from an online provider overseas, outside our jurisdiction, in theory, our law applies. So if you don't get what you paid for, you have a right to a refund. In practice, it's really, really, really hard to enforce your rights with some business that's in, I don't know, Sweden or Yugoslavia or Bahrain. Uh, So pretty much it might be money lost. Once again, it comes back to information. Consumers need to know where and who they're buying for. Because often when you go online, you don't actually know where the seller is located. That's some information that we need to be provided with. The other thing, I think, is that we need... Most IT developers, there's a lot of IT developers that are quite anarchic who actually don't want to be the servant of the of the multinational corporation. And we've seen that in all sorts of spaces. I'd love to see that that anarchic tendency in the consumer space. I think some of the uh, developers, the hackers, the IT consultants need to get on board and start providing uh, products that will help consumers. So products that can actually rank the reputation of the online provider in a way that's a little bit more sophisticated than the stars you might get on Amazon or eBay. And also start uh, probing or investigating the contracts that are being provided. So the consumer space is way behind what's happening in the commercial space. In the commercial space, there's already artificial intelligence, use of artificial intelligence to investigate what's in a contract or what's in a document and it's used by business in business-to-business transactions. It'd be really good to see that in the consumer space. The consumers are actually empowered by the very technology that they're wanting to engage with. And I'd like to hear more about that, but before we get there, I mean, we do have reviews and rankings and so forth at the moment. So, and I I actually saw a recent edition of the, the check out on the ABC looking at this and really taking Google to task about their ranking and the fact that they'll take money from companies that don't deliver goods and allowing them to be highly ranked or taking, you know, ranking them at the ad space at the top of the page and so forth. I mean, is, is this an area that we also need to deal with that the current ranking doesn't necessarily have the consumer in mind? That's such a good point. We look at rankings, but rankings can be really easily manipulated by either the seller or the online 
uh, platform on which the, the seller is selling. So I think we need better understanding of how rankings work and possibly an independent ranking system uh, which actually verifies the identity of who's doing the ranking. Because at the moment, you, you, can, you can manipulate both what comes up on Google search and also how rankings are read. Now, some online sites have quite good ranking systems. Some of the... Um, accommodation booking services are quite strict about how and who can rank and I think that's also something to look forward to to start asking the providers themselves to be really transparent about how the ranking works because I mean ideally we step out of the law the law's a really clumsy and slow way to protect people and resolve disputes we want the providers themselves the people in the marketplace to take control of that process and start saying here's how we are actually genuinely protecting you. Instead of just throwing these nine-hour contracts that can't be read at our consumers, we need to respect our consumers and say, here's who we are, this is where we are, this you've got a problem, this is how you resolve it, and guess what, this is how our ranking system works. We have procedures in place to make sure that the only people ranking are the people who've bought a product as opposed to the people who've been paid to do the ranking. If you just tuned in, we're talking with Associate Professor Jeannie Patterson from Melbourne Law School, all about e-consumer protections. And um, I mean, in terms of artificial intelligence and uh, the law sector more broadly, I mean, engaging a lawyer can be very costly. It can be very time consuming for people. Is there a capacity or is it happening already that artificial intelligence is kind of stepping in and not replacing, but but changing the way that lawyers typically work and providing consumers with um, a little bit more power, I guess, in in, um, addressing and understanding their concerns? Well, actually, artificial intelligence is replacing lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) Some people might think that's a good thing. I personally won't, but uh, uh, there's lots of stuff happening in the artificial intelligence and online space, in fact, at the moment. So there's a really famous... uh, chatbot, I guess, uh, called Do Not Pay Bot that was pioneered um, in the UK and the US, which actually gave real-time advice to consumers about how not to pay their parking fines when they weren't valid. Now, that chatbot technology has now been moved into other spaces, so now it's providing advice to people seeking asylum on how to prepare the documents and the like which is you know just a great development what is a chatbot it's like you're basically chatting with the with a chatbot well actually one of my students worked over the over the holidays developing her own chatbot so what it is a chatbot is just um it's 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 artificial intelligence but what you feed in is a series of questions actually you know how when you You know, when you were younger, you used to do those little surveys in magazines and you go, yes, no, yes, no. And it would take you through a sort of pathway to find out, you know, what pop star you'd be or or who your ideal partner is. A chatbot is really something like that. It's a series of yes, no questions with the answers fed in, but it works online and it works through voice recognition. So really it's, it's artificial intelligence and it's been programmed to answer the most common questions people ask and then, give, and then directs the person to the, next, to the next relevant question. And it can then, the great thing is, it can then prepare a legal letter for a person depending on the answers they've given, which is just amazing if you think about it. Yeah, and, and so this is part of the, the kind of online dis- dispute resolution kind of yeah. platforms that, that you're hoping will assist consumers to to follow up with their rights or at least understand what they are before they make a purchase. Absolutely. So this sort of online dispute resolution. So chatbox works it can work at the front end of the dispute of the transaction. It can tell you what to look for and what to think about. 
it can also work at the artificial intelligence can work at the back end of the transaction when things go wrong to help consumers resolve disputes because at the moment if you have a dispute you hope that the supplier will help you you'll go in and go look it doesn't work i didn't get it can you do something but sometimes they resist that they go oh, well you must have broken it particularly with cons- with students actually students often get the answer you must have done something wrong so uh, the idea of online dispute resolution it's, it gives an authoritative way of one explaining what the consumer's legal rights are and also a way of negotiating some sort of resolution to that claim now that sort of technology that online dispute resolution technology using artificial intelligence is actually being trialed now in british columbia <laughs> so you you have hopes that the the kind of tension that we have online at the moment where really it's about providing you know consumer choice and business interests online can be tempered by some of these technologies to actually bring some rights into play when it comes to... I think they can. I think the good thing about technology is it's actually uh, power neutral. It can be used by powerful parties, but it can also be used by by not powerful parties. And we're seeing that again and again. I mean, we hear a lot about digital disruptors. Now, often we think about Uber uh, or Airbnb, new unusual businesses, but digital disruptors can also be using technology to empower people who previously haven't had much of a voice. Well, thank you so much for your research. You can read more about what Jeannie Patterson's been writing at the Melbourne Law School on the University of Melbourne website and uh, e-consumer protections. I'm sure you stick that together with her name and you can come up with some really interesting articles. Thanks for coming to Triple R today. Absolute pleasure. Food is travelling further and further to get to our tables and it's estimated that the food in your average shopping basket will have combined food miles of about 20,000 kilometres before it even gets into your gob. Um, but the move towards urban agriculture where food is grown in cities and where, you know, we're closer, I suppose, to where most of us live is about food, but it's also about ensuring global food security. Our Melbourne entrepreneur and sustainability entrepreneur, Brendan Condon's playing in this space. Um, I've actually known Brendan, G over 15 years or maybe 20, that's making us old, Brendan. Um, he's really well known for his social and environmental businesses and has recently returned from a launch food forum in California where he rubbed shoulders with others who are innovating with urban agriculture and it's really great to have you in it Triple R Brendan because we've talked lots over the years about how housing is encroaching onto our urban food bowls in Melbourne I'm thinking Werribee but other places as well are we kind of setting up a problem where we're going to have food security issues in Melbourne into the future do you think? I think so, and it's not only Melbourne, it's really repeated right around the world with major cities that are growing. Uh, we typically set up cities next to good water resources and, and, and uh, soil resources, but as those cities grow, we tend to grow over these um, and sprawl, and that's what's happening in Melbourne in, in the west and the, and the southeast. Uh, you know, the, the ever-expanding girth of Melbourne means that we're building straight over the Werribee floodplain, you know, a lot of that nice agricultural land in there and also uh, in the southeast. And yeah, look, we have, we're setting ourselves up for problems. Uh, statistics show that by 2050, right now we're producing around 40% of our vegetables within our food bowl, but by 2050 it's set to drop to under 20%. Uh, on a global scale, we're going to have 9 to 10 billion people by 2050. Uh, we're having people moving into cities en masse and also we have climate change, which means a lot of broadacre agriculture is going to become um, more disrupted. So we do have these major challenges we need to meet, but at the same time, there's massive opportunities in cities to, to grow food. 
And I mean, you've, you, you're director of a, a number of businesses. One of them's Australian Ecosystems, which has been revegetating um, housing estates all over Melbourne. So you've kind of seen this sprawl happen firsthand, you know, some good, good soil there to plant into. But I wonder whether there is a kind of an awareness that we're creating this issue. I don't think so. It's not It's not a really wide awareness at the moment. I think uh, largely we've sort of lost our connection with our food cycle and, and uh, I don't think the antenna's out, mm. uh, apart from uh, small percentages of the population in terms of looking at this sort of macro trend. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a sneaking, looming, slow, slow motion problem. Yeah. Yeah. So you've um, started working into the space of kind of vertical gardening or urban agriculture. And, you know, when I, I Googled that and there is a lot happening in this space, but it's all kind of at the beginnings. We, we don't have massive uh, kind of urban agriculture happening around the world, but there is a lot lot starting. So maybe maybe give us a bit of an introduction to what urban agriculture can be. Sure. So um, if you look at uh, the global trends you know, there are some really great examples internationally and, and often it's born out of necessity. So, uh, you know, in Detroit, when after around the GFC and the collapse of the auto industry, there was a, a lot of um, urban farming set up out of necessity. So it sort of can, it can be counter-cyclical to the, the economy uh, when the economy's, um, um, you know, going bad, this stuff takes off out of necessity. So, you know, in North America and Europe, uh, there's, there's um, I think, a lot more uh, urban ag than here. And, and what we're seeing right now is an explosion in the space. I think that uh, there are entrepreneurs jumping into this space, uh, harnessing ultra-modern designs and um, and a lot of high-tech as well. So, so you're seeing the proliferation of really intensive, high-production, um, high-tech sort of urban ag People like um, uh, Elon Musk's uh, brother, Kimball Musk, he, he's jumped right into this space and he's fitting out shipping containers that are multi-tiered, uh, stacked LED light uh, vertical farms. And then you're seeing other much bigger ones. Uh, they're using LED lights where they're optimising the light wavelength to vegetable production. So they've got this sort of purple light setups um, and it's, it's highly computerised. So that that's sort of one, um, one response. And there's sort of you know it's it's growing massively there's a lot of a lot of activity in the space but you're also going to see potential shakeouts in the space a bit like sort of solar and clean clean techs um it's the new clean techs urban ag and you'll find that there's huge huge amounts of approaches some will become redundant they'll be some will work uh, prove to be more efficient and but it's just fantastic to see it really taking off and with i mean using led lights for example in urban agriculture and i imagine um potentially larger amounts of water than you can have if you've got sort of plants in in the ground on sort of a sprawling, um, you know, acreage or, or as, as we've grown food traditionally, is there a challenge around, um, I guess, you know, trying to keep our energy consumption down? Those sort of systems can be uh, high energy consumption. So that's that's a challenge. Um, that's not the space I'm working in. So I can't give you a, a really detailed analysis of that, but just to say that it's, 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 there's a huge amount of uh, activity in that space right now. Um, for us, uh, from an engineering and horticultural point of view, I look at cities as a phenomenal opportunity to grow food because to grow f- grow plants, you need soil and nutrient, you need light, light, water and space, and we have a real abundance in cities of all those things. So, you know, at the moment, we've got a, huge volumes of food waste that are currently being discarded, going to landfill, creating problems, methane, you know, um, 
And if we redirect those into local composting, you can loop that back into food. And then there's another opportunity, which is stormwater. We're generating more water running off our urban form than we ever have historically. Uh, so there's four to 400 to 600 billion litres of, of stormwater running off Melbourne's surfaces at the moment. We're only using 400, million, 400 billion of drinking water. If we can redivert that into food production, uh, then you're starting to potentially set, set a city up for, to be a food producing powerhouse. Then we've got space, we've got rooftops, car parks, um, backyards, walls if you go vertical. So if you can build low tech, smart food producing architecture to intercept those waste streams, then you can start really producing a huge amount of food. And I mean, the, the kinds of, Biofield is the company that, that you're working with in this space and you have looked at wicking beds, which is, you know, technology or ideas that have been around for a long time, but you've kind of, you're trying to do it in a more mass produced way. Maybe explain how that co- closed loop system will work, n- not only to scale up from a backyard, but, but to how it can actually, you know, feed a whole community perhaps. Okay, so uh, for garden enthusiasts, a lot of people may know wicking beds where you, it's a bottom watering garden bed where you're capturing water and and bringing the water in at the base of the the growing system and it wicks up through capillary action. They store water. Uh, They're very water efficient. The plants, um, the only water loss is through evapotranspiration through the foliage of the plants. And because they're bottom watering, you don't get much weeding either because you get a dry crust on the top. Um, So it knocks out most of your weeding and watering and it flips... um, the cost benefit of urban gardening in favour of busy urbanites because you can just you have to water once a week during the summer and once a month during winter you can come back to your veggies after you've been away or working and they're happy to see you so it really reduces um the amount of time put into 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 growing and, and they're ergonomic too so um so they're good for you know elderly people and a whole range of people what we've done is we've optimised wicking garden beds and we're mass producing those and we've introduced aeration into them. So as the water level drops, it, it brings air into the um, into the system so that you don't get anaerobic water. So we've sort of designed out and improved the design of wicking beds and we're looking to drop the cost. So the wicking beds are the key component of our, our approach and it's scalable. So we're, we're basically designing scalable, quick-to-assemble urban farms that you can build out on rooftops and car parks and back yards and schools and they can be assembled in a matter of sort of days they can also intercept local stormwater so you can capture rainwater off rooftops we're not using street level stormwater because you get lots of nasties in that so it's more rooftop harvest we can clean that and filter it in our farm designs and then we put that water into food production and we can also intercept these massive food waste streams through composting and and bringing that nutrient in so we're sort of you know, capturing those big low-hanging fruit that we treat as waste streams, but they're actually resources and they're incredibly uh, valuable. And so, I mean, it sounds, you know, like a like a win-win sort of um, situation. But how much um, take up is there in in Melbourne for for this kind of technology? Is it is it something that councils should get interested in, or is it you're targeting individuals to kind of? move into this space? Look, statistics show that there's a, there's a huge amount of interest in food growing. Um, it's more than 50% of the population would grow food if, if they had um, could overcome certain barriers, which is, is time. Um, it's, what are the barriers? Uh, time, space and, and expertise. Um, so if you can develop simple systems that reduce the amount of time and that you can 
nimbly fit into in a non-intrusive way onto rooftops and into urban form, then I think there'll be really big uptake, absolutely. And the dollar values of, of what you can generate, you can, you know, it's all about avoided food spend. And we've got a nice big garden at the Cape Sustainable Housing Project in Gippsland up and running, and we're finding that it's over $1,000 a year of avoided food spend for the residents for minimal effort with this clever design. So I think um, there's a, a lot of interest and I, I think if we've got the right architecture, then we can flip Melbourne into a, a big food producing um, uh, machine and, and then you can start building the food sharing economy off the back of that. So you'll start finding people can be generating decent surpluses of food in their backyards and then if you use other clever, clever techniques, you can start to actually develop the, sh- the food sharing economy, which would be pretty cool. And if you're someone who lives in an apartment, for example, and, and want sort of one of these systems purely just for your own consumption or largely for your own consumption, is it sort of leafy greens that you can grow or does it go beyond that? Because I imagine leafy greens are, you know, easier and, and faster to grow than some other vegetables with a you know, limited space. So the high-tech uh, systems are all focusing on the fast turnover you know, uh, rapid growing crops. But our system's got deep soil soil structure, so you can grow a really wide range of, of things. Uh, so pretty much anything that's appropriate in, in our climate. Uh, so yeah, we, we've grown a huge range of things at the Cape using the system. So it's it's um, you can grow the slow growing stuff. Um, if you buddy it with food preserving, you can get your big surpluses of organic tomatoes and then you can do your passata making days and then you're, you're set for the year. Um, so combining it also with food preserving will mean that you can even out those humps of, uh, of surplus produce and even that out. And, um, and then... There's just a huge range of other benefits, you know, reducing food miles to food meters, it's exercise, um, it's social contact, it's health. And, you know, it also, the other thing about really well-designed urban gardens is they raise property values. So there's a um, study of 500 community gardens in New York and they looked at property values. They found that each well-run garden generated an increase in property values of around $2 million within uh, a half kilometre radius. So, you know, for the development industry, for um, homeowners, these are forms of green infrastructure that are desirable and can add value. I mean, you're a huge advocate for this stuff, Brendan. You spend a lot of time, you know, revving people up saying, look, we can do this. It's not too hard. And uh, you have, you know, got got the notice of of people overseas launch food, which um, I actually don't know that much about, but I know that they did pull together a whole lot of people like yourself from all over the world to talk about the potential here. Maybe, um, you know, tell us a little bit about who else was there and some of the problems that that people are trying to solve um, with regards to food security. Sure. So launch pulled together 11 innovators from across the world. They selected 11 out of 300 odd applications, backed by USAID and um, Australian uh, AusAid and uh, and DFAT. And they invest in this because they want these problems solved. They can, you know, they said to me at the launch that we can keep throwing hundreds of millions into Hercules aircrafts flying in shipments of food, but if we can fundamentally solve food security, then it means that the world's a more stable place. Um, so we had some fantastic people there. The, the, I think one of the classic people I met was the cricket, cricket king of Canada. So he's a guy who had a little reptile park with his brother and he started showing their neighbours and all of a sudden they became a little tourist attraction in their town and they thought, how are we going to feed these things? So they started breeding crickets. Yes, you're not talking bat and ball here. No, talking little <laughs> chirpy ones. And uh, he's now producing 6,000 kilos a week of, of cricket protein for human consumption. And it's a really complete protein with all the amino acids. It takes six weeks to, to produce it. Uh, we So we had a great cooking night where we cooked up cricket patties and cricket, uh, all, all sorts of things with uh, crickets. And um, so look, 
that that's 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 fantastic. We also had uh, two two guys from Pakistan who are setting up a mobile phone platform for small farmers in rural Pakistan, so they get instant information on crop, uh, you know, how to what what crops to grow, animal husbandry, climate conditions, uh, rainfall, and they also link with the city urban consumers in Pakistan and take out the intermediaries who are sort of taking out a lot of their income and they're directly trading into the cities and they want to bring 150 million small farmers onto that platform and then take, you know, they're sort of looking to take that global. Um, so, look, there, there were a range of, uh, of really interesting people, low-tech, uh, non-electricity-based um, refrigeration uh, was another one, uh, innov- innovative ways to preserve food and, and, and um, increase shelf life. So, look, there was some, some fantastic stuff. We were the ones who were there in the urban act, ag tech space um, with, with, um, uh, with our approach. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting. It was good fun. And I, I think, I mean, I, I know you've been working with the City of Melbourne to have a look at trying to create urban reservoirs, you know, capturing stormwater to make it available to gardens and the like. And I suppose a lot of this stuff is no-brainer, but we're having to retrofit it on. And is it going to come out of the private sector, a lot of this innovation, or are you seeing uh, that our local governments or government agencies are moving into this space as well to try and solve some of these issues? Uh, City of Melbourne and, and councils are, are very supportive. It's interesting. I think globally in terms of the big push for sustainability, at federal levels, we're not seeing a, a, a lot of drive to really grapple with these fundamental issues. And then if, as you step down at local government levels, cities are the nimble powerhouses of a lot of the drive to solve the, the big problems that we're, we're seeing. So, look, we, we, you know, we, we've had um, g- good support from City of Melbourne. We've um, designed big stormwater harvesting systems that are now capturing hundreds of millions of litres of stormwater from Melbourne and plumbing, plumbing them back into the city spaces. I think the next thing is food. Um, Melbourne mapped... The available rooftop space um, in the city, it came out at 700 hectares, of which 250 hectares were identified as potential urban agriculture, uh, potentially suitable for urban ag. So I think, um, you know, in the next four years, we'll, we'll see a push uh, with the City of Melbourne, we hope. Um, and I guess the other the other thing is if you design these systems cleverly, you can intercept that, that rainwater, you take it out of the system and you can meet your stormwater reduction targets. So developers and, and um, building projects must meet those targets. You can do it through rain gardens or wetlands or contributing to a big scheme. But now you can do it through a farm and you can produce food and put a commercial value on that stormwater. So, uh, yeah, I think um, it'll be private sector and, and public sector led. Yeah, so regulation can make a difference yep. in this area. Thanks so much for coming in. We're out of time. Brendan Condon, uh, sustainability entrepreneur, uh, does lots of stuff, Australian Ecosystems, Cape Pat Eco Village, and co-founder of the engineering company Biofilter, which we've been talking about their kind of innovation in the urban agriculture space uh, this morning, and all the best. Thank you very much. Very fortunate to have educator and Yorta Yorta and Wurundjeri elder Lois Peeler with us. She's principal and exec director of the Warrawa Aboriginal College where she uses a unique educational framework to help her students reach their potential by nurturing Aboriginal culture as well as looking at health and other outcomes for her students. Um, Warrawa is a boarding school for girls in years 7 to 12 and it's based out near Hillsville and we've had uh, Lois on the program um, before but not for some years and in recent times she's received a whole lot more accolades. Um, She's our Senior Victorian Australian of the Year this year and um, that's in recognition of her achievements in education but also in youth justice and in entertainment as well and she sits on a range of boards and groups and um, congratulations Lois you just accepted an honorary doctorate from RMIT as well last week. 
I did indeed. Um, thank you for the invitation to be on, on your program. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, uh, I understand that um, you had members of your school community playing music as part of um, the celebrations on Friday and I suppose uh, in involving them in, in the kinds of achievements that you've had as well just shows what, what leadership can, can do for them if they um, follow the kind of educational program that, that you're helping set up there at uh, Warawa. Well, it was certainly great to have um, some of our students involved in the, in that um, quite prestigious ceremony, um, and I did um, hope that it would be, in, you know, an inspiration for them to go on. And indeed, that's what they were talking about, because um, they had never been to a, uh, you know, a, a, such a ceremony where they were conferring degrees and so forth. So, yeah, I think that they got inspired by that. And so for those who, um, who aren't too familiar with uh, what you do over at uh, Warrawa College, Lois, could you just um, give us an idea of the, the model, the educational model that you have instilled there? Well, the, um, the Warrawa model is based on, you know, uh, an integrated approach to education. It's, um, it's around an academic learning. It's about health and well-being and uh, also about culture. So it's those three things that come together to, you know, in, in uh, delivering a holistic approach to education, um, which is really important for, um, I, I think, not only our girls, but particularly important for our students who come from uh, Aboriginal communities across the country. So the, the um, ability to have a strong focus on their their learning uh, through the academic plan, um, their health and well-being is uh, is taken care of and it's addressed, and uh, we get to celebrate culture. So those things come together um, to make a, a very appropriate program for our Aboriginal students. And I mean, you'd know because you're in the educational space that there is so much hand-wringing in Australia about just mainstream um, educational outcomes from our students, you know, international rankings and the like. But you're actually seeing some really important um, progress or good student outcomes coming out of your model. And I wonder, is it the cultural aspect of it that is key for your students? Many of the former students come back to us and uh, say that it was the the cultural um, aspect, getting to find their seat and, the, you know, who they are as an Aboriginal person, find their place in the world. Uh, but also, obviously, the, um, the care, the nurturing um, provided in a boarding situation and very intensive support in the, uh, in the teaching uh, program. So those three things come together and we... We continue to do that even though we have changed to an all-girls school now. And I'm interested also, Lois, in, in what happens when students leave Warrawa because it's it's four years, four kind of really important seminal years in people's life between the years of, of seven to ten. Do you maintain connections with your alumni once they leave and, and head back to their communities? We do as best we can. Um, we have a lot of the um, siblings of uh, former students uh, that come through and obviously the families stay connected with us. Um, social media is great for being able to stay in touch with, um, with former students and I often run into um, former students when I'm travelling around um, in the Aboriginal you know, meetings um, space 
uh, and they're doing some wonderful things, you know. In, in uh, Many are working in um, Aboriginal community affairs, whether it's in the health sector, aged care, um, in, you know, education. So um, they've gone on to do some really uh, great leadership roles. And you um, grew up or spent a lot of time at the Gunja Aboriginal uh, Reserve uh, as a as a young woman, and I mean you've been you know spoken about how important it was to you growing up around so many incredible leaders that um, were surrounding you at that time. And I wonder, are you sort of seeing that as well as as young women come together from all over the country that they can see what they can achieve by being surrounded by leaders of their community as part of their education at Warrawa? Uh, yes, I, I think that I was very fortunate, of course, to, to have... Um, the role models that I had, many in my own family, but you know, in, and also in the extended family, um, and I think that for the young women today, it's very important for them to have role models. Um, and you know, we've got a lot of um, women achievers around it, you know, us all the time, and I, I point to those and you know, give them. I think that they give the girls inspiration that they can achieve too. So, um, yes, I, I point that out. We, um, we talk about these things. We talk about overcoming what some of the issues are, and, uh, you know, in our communities that some of our people face, but, but that doesn't um, define who we are, that we can achieve if we set our mind to it. And um, you, you mentioned, Lois, that Warrawa, of course, has been running for, for many years. And I read over the weekend um, in SBS News that there's plans to, to roll out the kind of Warrawa model more broadly. Is there anything you can, you can tell us about that? Oh, it's very early days at the moment, but uh, there's certainly, and I think there's greater recognition now than there was when the college first started about, you know, um, Student well-being and and the importance of that, but but not only that, the the um, need to have the the cultural um, aspect for our Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander children. Um, so those three things, the you know the academic learning, the health and the well-being of um, of the young people, and cultural celebration, uh, I think they're really important, and that comes. We have uh, a lot of families come down to Warrawa to bring their children down. So we have a great uh, relationship with um, uh, people that come from many communities. And, you know, that's what they say. We, we need a school like Warrawa here. And so that's what we're looking at at the moment. And uh, exciting times. And we're with Lois Peeler. She's um, the principal of Warrawa Aboriginal College. We're having a little bit of sound issues, but we're going to push on with one more question, Lois. And, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, we're hearing a lot about treaty negotiations in um, Victoria. And uh, we've been speaking about this off and on in this program about, I suppose, the opportunities there to increase the education around uh, Aboriginal history um, for all students in this state, but um, particularly for our Indigenous students as well. But today we have the beginnings of a big um, summit happening in Uluru, um, speaking more about constitutional recognition. And I wonder, are your students kind of tapped into what's what's happening in this kind of broader space? And is it something that you have high hopes for that um, we are going to see some positive change with regards to treaty and recognition? Look, our students are absolutely tapped into what's happening uh, 
I think that uh, it's important for them to know what's going on in, you know, uh, the um, Indigenous space. Uh, these are going to be the leaders of the future, so um, we keep them uh, in tune with, uh, you know, uh, the, the happenings. And um, I believe that um, we are all hoping to see the, um, you know, the changes uh, within the Constitution to recognise because it's it's uh, silent on the fact that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, were the first Australians. So I think that that's fundamental. That needs to happen. But I think, you know, what we're also looking for is um, the uh, treaty. I think that treaty can exist. Uh, the two things can come together, both the constitutional change and treaty. And so there's a lot of work that's being done as to what that, you know, what it would look like and what people want to see within that. So we want it to be a meaningful change and um, and that it's not just going to be symbolic. So I think, you know, um, there's a lot of talking to be done still and um, uh, we're all looking to see what the outcome of the summit will be with our leaders that are up there. And uh, do you have plans at the School for Reconciliation Week? I think it kicks off this Friday coming. Oh, it's a huge week um, here at the school. Beginning tomorrow, we have our Reconciliation Sports Carnival and we invite schools from around the the, uh, the district and some of our partner schools who, uh, well, one is coming down from Sydney, that's Pimble Ladies College. So they come down and they play sport. We have cultural exchange, we have sporting exchange and uh, just social exchange and it, it's a fantastic day. Then we've got... Um, a number of other things. They, uh, the girls have uh, play sport. They have a football team. They're going to be part of the um, Sir Douglas Nichols round at the MCG, uh, where they umpire the uh, the little leagues, um, and possibly they'll be uh, involved in the long walk. So it's a very busy week for us. I bet. And I actually, I heard that one of your students, at least, or at least one, uh, is looking to, to be drafted, hopefully, in the future in the AFLW as well. So you've got some um, some uh, sports stars, hopefully, within uh, within your walls at the moment too. Yes, we do indeed. Um, we have a sports academy, and so the girls are doing umpire training. They're actually um, um, playing in the local association, and yes, they've been uh, one in the TAC and and very talented young women. Thanks so much, Lois, and we will um, end it here because our sound issues aren't improving, but thanks so much for making time for Triple R today. It's um, been fantastic to have you. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Thank you very much.